0: Hey guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle, crush it.
1: So today we have Daniel Willingham on the podcast, who wrote a book called Outsmart Your Brain, Why Learning is Hard and How You Can Make It Easy. You went to Harvard, right? You've been teaching at the University of Virginia for many years. Are you still there, by the way?
0: I'm still there.
1: Oh, you are. Okay. Have you been Mm. there this whole time?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I came here in 1992. I mean, I went home some, you know, in the evenings. But yes, uh, I've been working here since 1992.
1: So do you want to just start, let's start by just giving people a little bit of background on who you are and why you wrote this book called Outsmart Your Brain and what makes you the, you know, the expert. I mean, I know why you are, but just kind of give us a quick origin story of who you are.
0: For sure. Yeah. So my background is in experimental psychology. And the work I did in graduate school was sort of at the intersection of cognitive psychology and neuroscience. So I was interested in both mind and brain. And I, I studied learning. And the, my work at that time was very technical. So there, there's sort of the I, old joke that you get a PhD and your parents tell your friends, like, tell their friends, My son is a doctor, but not the type who helps people. (laughs) I I, I sort of went one better. So I I studied learning, but I couldn't like help you learn anything really because the work I was doing was, like I said, very technical. And I did that for about ten years post-PhD. So uh, I taught for a couple of years at Williams College, College, and then I came here uh, to the University of Virginia. And then there's an education nonprofit in town and uh, the head, I, I had had a reason to meet with the, the person who founded it. And he said, why don't you come until we had this big annual conference uh, with like five or 600 teachers. Why don't you come and talk to them about cognitive psychology and how learning works? And I said, I don't know anything about like how, you know, education, like I'm the type of person who studies learning, who can't help you learn. And he said, no, we, we get all that. But like, we just think it would be, I just think the teachers would find it interesting. So, you know, I have an ego like anybody else. So I'm like, sure, I'll come talk to your teachers. And so I showed up. Well, before I showed up, like two weeks before I was supposed to give this talk, like this is now six months later and like I'm creeping up in the talk and I suddenly panic and I realize, what am I going to tell teachers about how people learn that they don't already know? And so, but, you know, it was too late for me to cancel so, I literally just sort of picked some slides from the course I had been teaching to sophomores uh, here at UVA for uh, years already by that time. And sort of it's like the first course you would take in learning in, uh, about learning in college. And I showed up at this conference, and to my astonishment, the the, the teachers not only didn't know it, but they thought it was really interesting and applicable to the kinds of things that that they were doing helping helping people learn how to learn and my core this was like 2001 and my my career completely changed at that point i suddenly realized wow my field has been doing a terrible job of telling people about what we know about learning and attention and all these aspects of our own minds that we want to be able to better control and so i shut down my basic science lab and worked on writing for popular audiences, for teachers, for students, for parents, for you know just adults who want to understand learning more thoroughly and, and, and specifically be able to learn more effectively in their own lives. So that's what I've been doing for about the past 15 years or so.
1: And so you had another book before this book, and what was the name of that book? It was called... I had a few.
0: I have, I, I, there's the, probably my most popular is called Why Don't Students Like School? And that's, that's directed to teachers. I also have a, book, a couple of books about reading as well.
1: So let me ask you, so why is learning so hard? You know, like I, I feel like there are people who are just naturally more gifted at learning in school and academics, and there are other people, me included in this who just re- really had a hard time um, in school? Why is that? Yeah.
0: So I I think there, those are two slightly different questions. but um, And let me start with the more general one, one of why most people find learning kind of challenging. And this is really the theme of the book, which is that we tend to use strategies for learning that Feel like they're working, which seems perfectly logical, and then also don't feel too difficult. But the not feeling too difficult, this is why the book is called Outsmart Your Brain. Your brain kind of tricks you into doing strategies that feel effective but actually aren't. So the analogy I draw in the book is suppose you had a friend who uh, says they're they're trying to get into shape. One of the things they want to be able to do is they want to be able to do a lot of push-ups, so, you go visit them one day when they're training, and you find them and they're doing push ups on their knees. And you say, Why are you doing like you want to be able to do a lot of push ups? You should be practicing regular push ups. I mean, in fact, it'd be even better if you like practice the really hard ones, like the ones where you launch yourself off the floor and clap. And your friend says, <laughs> Yeah, you know. A couple of people told me that, and I tried that, but like I can barely do any of those, right? And the point here is I'm trying to do a lot of pushups and look, when I do them on my knees, I can do so many pushups so fast, right? And so people recognize that you need to challenge yourself when you're doing physical exercise. It turns out the same is true when you're trying to learn something. A lot of people when they want to learn something, they end up doing the mental equivalent of pushups on their knees. So this is why, Learn, one of the reasons learning is hard and 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 i think the analogy works in the sense that also that like it's not the push-ups on your knees is no exercise at all and it's not that the things people do when they're trying to learn are completely ineffective they're just not very efficient and so they could make much better use of their time if they knew some uh, some other strategies
1: it's amazing that you use that particular analogy i don't know if you know my background at all but that is my background fitness
0: all right
1: yes and so whenever i have people on the podcast i don't know most of the time they they use these fitness analogies because of my background which is really funny but why i love that analogy is because there's like two trains of thought of the push-up right you have you have some people who really believe that you should be doing it on your knees to get stronger and then as you get stronger you get you go onto your toes i'm a believer that if you want to do a push-up you got to do a push-up on your on you your go. on your toes and mm-hmm. you, know, you can, even if you only can do one push-up or half a push-up, it's still better than doing the, those knee push-ups because you're never going to get to the... How else are you going to get to the toes if you don't practice on your toes, right? right. So, that, so that's, I love that you use that. So can you talk about then using the same type of, you know, staying with that kind of analogy of challenging yourself on your toes with your brain, what would be some ways that we could do those more challenging learning techniques so we can get better versus, you know, doing the half-ass way of being on your knees with the push-ups?
0: Sure. I mean, there there are lots of examples I could give. I'll start with reading. So when people are reading, we read for different purposes, obviously, and the type of reading I'm Talking about now is not like where you're reading for pleasure, you know, you're reading sort of light nonfiction or, you know, a a novel or something like that. But instead, like there's something that's probably work related that's kind of serious and kind of challenging, and you're you're reading not for the purpose of being entertained, but you're reading for the purpose of learning something new. When you're doing that type of reading, the thing that people tend to do is they fall back on the type of reading that is familiar to them. And the type of reading that's familiar to you is you like kind of plop down a chair and you just start reading. Like when I ask my students, like how do you read this? They look at it like I've asked a really strange question. They're like, I don't know, like sitting? Like what do you even mean? Like how do I read it? Like you're you put your eyes on it, you just start reading. And coupled with that is people highlight. And yeah. highlighting highlighting feels like a great idea because it feels really efficient. You're like, I'm I'm noting now what is important so that later if I need to revisit this, I can find the important parts really easy and I'll save time. I won't have to like reread the whole thing. But the truth is when you're reading something that's kind of challenging and new to you, you don't know what's important. And so you're not very likely to highlight what's actually the most important content. So this was a study uh, examined in a pretty clever study by some researchers with college students. And the researchers went to the used bookstore on campus and they bought 10 copies of like the Poly Sci 101 textbook and the Econ 101 textbook. They bought 10 copies of each. And then they just compared, these are used copies, and they just compared what had the previous owner highlighted. And what they found was all of these students had highlighted different things, right? So it, it just sort of goes to show when you're first starting out, you... You don't know. You don't know exactly what you're doing. So, a bet here, what's a better way to tackle reading that you're uh, that's challenging and unfamiliar? What you want to do is instead of just sitting down and starting to read with your highlighter in hand, you actually want to have a little bit of a plan. So, you there's studies showing that the way that you read and what you get out of what you read differs depending on what you perceive to be your goal. What am I expecting to learn from this? And so you can, and even if you have you know very vague expectations, because like someone told you to read, your boss told you to read this, you don't really know what it's going to be. If it's semi technical reading, there's going to be headings, you know, uh, and subheadings. So you can look at the headings and subheadings. And from that sort of figure, what is it? What does this seem to be about? What am I expecting? I am going to know by the end of having read this. And that should generate some questions. And now when you're reading, you're thinking of two things. One is, uh, did I pose the right questions or not? And two, if I did pose the right questions, what are the answers? And so that's going to get you thinking much more deeply about what you're reading. And as you're doing it, instead of highlighting, take notes. And notes are a better idea than highlighting because you can edit them more easily. So that if you later, you know, two thirds of the way through, you suddenly realize, oh, I'm not, I, I, I actually didn't really understand what this was about. Then you can adjust your notes, whereas highlighting, of course, that's not an option.
1: Well, I find that what happens a lot of times with some people, like I was saying earlier, is, again, I'm gonna use myself as an example, I get distracted really easy. If I'm not interested in the material, I'll like, I'll get very distracted. I won't be, I can read the same sentence 77,000 times and not comprehend it. So I don't know what to write. I don't know what kind of note to write. I won't know what to do. And it becomes very difficult. What can you, do you have any like tips and suggestions for people who get distracted easily when they're trying to like learn material and they're not normally good at reading?
0: Absolutely. So distraction I mean there are two different types of distraction and they call for slightly different strategies. There's distraction from without. that's literally like there's something happening around you and uh, and so you're distracted. We've all heard like you should you know be in a quiet place with the, the minimum number of distractions. That's absolutely right sometimes you're not able to do that. But when when you think about it, I don't know about you, but like I'm way too optimistic about where I'm going to get work done.
1: Uh, and so <laughs> yes. when
0: I'm more real, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm waiting for a plane. Oh, I'll, I'll read this article when, you know, when I'm at the gate. And then there's like kids screaming and someone spilling soda on me and stuff. You know, it never works out as well as I think I'm going to. So being a little more realistic about, you know, planning and, and how easily you are distracted, I think can help a little bit. Rest breaks definitely help. Lots and lots of empirical research on that. And and that is very much in line with sort of our intuition that you do come back fresher from a break. The one thing I'll suggest for your audience is think about what you're doing during that break. Like, don't do something that actually doesn't make you come back feeling like you've had a break. Like, some people are like instantly on their phone and they're like, you know, updating Instagram and doing all this stuff. And it's actually kind of taxing. And so when they come back, they don't feel like a little bit rested and a little bit refreshed. They just, you know, they feel uh, equally or perhaps more exhausted. So think about that. The other way that people get distracted is, of course, social media and, you know, having trouble thinking about what you're doing. Like if you find that your thoughts are frequently drifting to social media, I'll throw one idea out there for your listeners, which is think about whether you really whether you really enjoy social media or whether you just kind of want it. Now, we've all heard that you get this this dopamine rush from social media. And the common perception is that dopamine is sort of the reward neurotransmitter. Dopamine plays a, a role in reward, but the the role it plays as probably more important is as a let's keep let's do that again neurotransmitter. It's a neurotransmitter that tells you this was a good thing, you should keep doing this. And it runs in parallel with other neurotransmitters that are more that feels good, right? As opposed to you should you should uh, do this again in the future. And I think one of the things that can happen for, and I know this happens for me, is that those two things are separable. The feeling of really enjoying something is not identical with I should keep doing this again and so the keep doing it again outlives the enjoyment and something that initially was very fun actually becomes not that much fun but you keep on feeling the urge to do it i've had this conversation a lot with uh, with a lot of my students and you know they'll talk about feeling addicted addicted to snapchat and i'll say like oh so you must you must really love it they're like actually i hate it you know, it's that's like it true. dominates my life. It's so boring. Like, you know, I'm I feel obligated to get on. It's like, oh my God, you're so beautiful. I can't believe it. Right. And it's just like it's inane. And it's but they do feel this urge to do it. And part of that is, of course, social reciprocity. Their friends are doing it. Yeah. And so they feel like they've got to do it. But they say it's more than that. If if that's all it were, like I would bundled all those things together and just like get it done at 6 p.m. or something. But instead, I do feel this urge. So this isn't true for everybody, but like I would in- interrogate your own motivations a little bit and think, when I'm distracted by social media, do I, re- do I really enjoy it when I'm doing it or do I just kind of want it?
1: That, By the way, that's a wonderful commentary because I think that's so on the nose because we're so drawn and pulled towards doing it and I don't think it's because uh, most of us even actually like it. It's because we feel this like necessity to do it because what, what are we missing? Like the fear of missing something, of not knowing. It's like tra- it, it's like retrained our brains in, in a, c- a certain way. And so you're saying there's a big difference because I know for me, I, I, for Instagram, it's like I, I don't enjoy it. It's actually like the opposite of being in it, uh, the opposite. But it's like it's an like, obligation it's an yeah. obligation and then like yeah. a feeling of like what am i missing what what's on there that i don't know and it's like that's it takes you down a whole other rabbit hole and i know i'm not alone especially if you're constantly having to feed the beast right having to constantly post having to constantly do that so i guess the question i have for you is because there is you're saying there's a difference between having that feeling of need because that's how your brain now is that's the that's really the neurotransmitter versus the want. How do we really distinguish, and how do we actually not even distinguish, because I think we can distinguish, how do we stop ourselves from being pulled to something that we know intellectually we don't want to be doing?
0: Yeah, well, I think that, I, I think recognition can, for a lot of people, Help. that gets them a long, a long way there, because they recognize, why, okay, so let me, let me think now, why exactly am I doing this? If it is if it is social obligation and reciprocity, I've had I've had talks about this actually with my children as well as some of my students uh, because how old they are your feel yeah. how
1: old are your children?
0: Uh, so I've, I've, yeah, I've got a 16 year old and a 17 year old, so they're sort of right in the sweet spot of like yeah. you know that of that social obligation feeling. And we've talked about sort of talking with your friends about like I do have Instagram, but here's what I use it for. And so just so you know, like. Love you to death, but I'm not going to be on there every day commenting about how pretty you are or whatever it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm going to be on periodically, and that, you know, here's what I'm using it for. And, you know, it, obviously, if, like, these are your friends, they're going to be fine with that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, more more broadly, taking it away from just my kids, you know, more broadly, you can think about what is it that is prompting me to feel like I still need to be doing this? and Is there another way that I can meet that need? So, for example, I would imagine that, you know, you've you got professional obligations. It's not just personal social obligations. And so, you know, that's a different thing than you, you you do need to be getting on and uh, because it's such an important channel. But you can think of, that's probably feels a little bit less urgent that it there's the constant fear of missing out and you can more readily bundle that and schedule it.
1: Hmm, okay, I like that. So you, you talk about in your book about being an independent learner. What is an, ind- how do we become an independent learner? What is it in your definition?
0: Yeah, my definition is where you are responsible for your own learning. And so the easy way to think about that is contrasting it with someone who's not an independent learner. Small children are not at all independent learners. Our expectations of children are, you know, appropriately zero. Right. And I joke in the book, like, you know, no preschooler ever came home and their parent chided them, like, you know, you're your teacher tells me you're not really trying to learn your colors, right? It's like we understand it's completely, it's completely up to the teacher to create an environment where the child is going to learn. And then slowly as school, as the child moves through the grades, they become more and more responsible for their own learning. And you know, by the time they come to me in college. You know they're most of the learning they do is really they're they're doing it on their own. Our expectation is for every hour that you're in classes, you're probably spending three hours or more learning outside of the classroom. And so that's all, you know up to you to regulate how that learning happens.
1: So what do you think, by the way, of the idea that because we all learn differently, do you think it's going to shift and change how people in school are going to learn? Or, because right now, it's pretty much no matter where you are, it's about going to lectures or yeah. taking notes. And I feel like we're people it's really in like the zeitgeist right now. People talking about all sorts of different. Type, not everyone can learn like that anyway, like we're talking about. Do you think that we're going to start learning differently, have different modalities to learning or that's kind of not
0: going to happen? So there are two pieces to that question. One is the question about how differently do we really all learn? And the answer is there are lots of ways in which the way that we learn is actually highly similar. And in a way, that's not that surprising. I mean, everyone's got a circulatory system that kind of works roughly the same way, a digestive system that works roughly the same way, and so on. And so you've got a central nervous system. And the basic architecture of how your brain works, like it can't be that different across people. Like evolution has not created several different categories of brains. Like there's a human brain. And the, the basics of how it operates are probably highly similar across individuals. What's different is what individuals have learned in the past, what they already, what they come into a new learning task already knowing which is enormously important for what your experience is gonna be in that learning task. If you already know a lot of similar stuff, then this new learning task is gonna be very different than if you're coming to it brand new. And of course, we have different motivations. We have different goals going into a learning task. We have different senses of ourselves as learners. If you see yourself as decidedly not a math person, but then you're starting a new business and someone tells you like, Well, you're on your own. Like you're going to have to figure out the accounting. You're, you know, you're of course going to be like, oh my God, I've got deep trouble. I've never been good at this. And the way you react during, you know, suppose you take an online accounting course. Well, one of the things about learning is there are always setbacks. You know, you fail a quiz or you like, there's something you just really can't wrap your mind around. But your interpretation of those setbacks is so different depending on your self image as a learner. Right? So if you're good at math and you're taking the accounting course, you go into it thinking this is not going to be hard for me because I'm always good at this stuff. Uh, and when there's a setback, you're like, oh, they explained that stupid because I didn't understand it. Right? It must be their explanation <laughs> yeah. was bad. Right? Whereas if it were me, yes. who's never who's always struggled a little bit, I'd be like, I knew it. You know, I knew this was going to be the hardest part of starting this business because I just have always sucked at math. So those are ways in which people really do differ but it's it's less about like, oh, your brain is really different than mine. It's more like your experiences have been different than mine. And that's led to different things that you know and can do. And part of that includes sort of your, your perception of yourself. So that's the first part. Then the second part is, is because of, you know, chat, GPT, God help us, and, yeah. and Zoom and all these other things, is school radically going to change? It's very hard to know. I mean, I, I can tell you, I've been in education now for 15, 20 years, and you know, for a while it was Chromebooks are going to are going to change everything. Schools are going to look unguessably different. Then it was Oculus. Oculus is going to change everything. Right? There's there's always some new tech thing that everyone's saying is going to change everything. There there are two reasons that none of them have panned out yet. One is that uh, you just get unanticipated complications that make it harder to implement in classrooms than you thought it was going to be. The second thing is that education is a conservative enterprise. It's conservative partly because teachers are used to doing what they've always done And they feel like I've got a good thing going here. Like you had better be pretty charming if you think I am going to completely change what I've been doing for the last 20 years, because, you know, you've got a VR set. Like I need more than that. And the other thing is that parents are really conservative. Parents want school for their children to look like they remember school being, because most of them look back, not all, but most of them look back and feel pretty positively about the experience they had. So that's that's why not much has happened yet, and why I suspect not much is going to happen in the future.
1: That's interesting to me because I think I get what you're saying, but the Chromebook and the Oculus, but the Chat GPT that to me is a little different. Only, and I hear what you're saying because I've heard those what you've said before about like there's there's going to be all sorts of kinks in the system that will make it very very difficult that we haven't even thought of. But you know, like the Chat GPT thing, like I can say, hey, do a an essay or a two 500 word thing on world war one or yeah. on this and it will literally give it to me, right? Like within like two, and if I don't like it, I can tweak it and modify it. Yeah. That, so how does that, cause we've never had that before. Doesn't that right. change the game though? Cause kids can now don't, they don't have to rely on their brain at all to think about the stuff and the steps. They can just type it into a, an AI thing and it just pops out for them. We never had that, even with Chrome, that's never been an option.
0: So there, there are two answers. One is I'm, I haven't verified this yet, so I don't know if this is right, but somebody on a Facebook group that I was looking at just said like, you can put an essay into ChatGPT and say, did you write this? And you'll actually get an accurate answer. I don't know if that's true or not. That would be great if it were true, if ChatGPT would... could, could just tell you, yeah, uh, yes, that was me. Uh, but even if it can't, so let me tell you what. Think about math teachers. So math teachers in the last month have frequently been saying, "Oh, so you you say that children now have access to a technology at home that allows them to solve problems that you set? My my my, that must be really distressing for you, right? Because of course, it, you know, it's not just calculators, but you know, kids have been googling math problems for years now and and finding answers online." And so math teachers have, of course, met this challenge and thought about ways of getting around this to make sure that children are actually learning math and they're not just Googling. So I imagine the same kind of thing is going to happen.
1: That makes, that's actually a good point. I didn't know that. So then you can just put, if they give you an essay, you can just check everybody by saying, did you write this ChatGPT?" GPT? And I'll say, yes, I, hope, I did. <laughs> yeah. And again, I don't, I have
0: not verified that. So I don't know if that's accurate. or that not.
1: That would be so helpful though. Right. Because yes. that will, yes. that that would change the game a hundred percent because, you know, I wrote, I had a book that came out a couple of months ago and um, I gave it to somebody. They wanted to read my book and I'm like, I'm going to quiz you on it as a joke. Right. And so I'm like, Hey, what was my book about? And they sent me like five really strong paragraphs on like what my book, and it was, they nailed it, right? I'm like, wow, this person really did write, you know, read my book. But but there were a couple things in there that I knew that was impossible. So I mean, like there are like, there are kinks in there and I think like to your point they'll probably figure out ways around it, navigate it so people can't cheat like they can. Because if I could pick it up, you know, that someone's doing that at this stage. It's
0: very new still. But maybe maybe we could just tell students chat GPT. I, I just put your essay into Chat GPT and ask ChatGPT. Like even if GPT can't do it, can't we just tell students? I that think it we can. can.
1: <laughs> I think that that's enough of a scare, right? Tactic. Yeah. I think that scare tactics work all the time. Life is full of what-ifs, so what if you try something new when it comes to dating? Talkify is a new way to meet other serious singles, and Talkify is the country's number one modern matchmaking service that is designed to help you achieve relationship success. Here's how it works. The Talkify matchmakers meet with you to learn about what you're actually looking for in a partner. And the great news is that 80% of match clients met their person within the first 12 matches. That is amazing. And right now, Talkify is offering our listeners 20% off when you become a client at talkify.com slash habits. That's talkify, T-A-W-K-I-F-Y.com slash habits for 20% off when you become a client. That's talkify.com. Slash habits. So I guess I, a, bigger, a big question I have for you, I guess like a great segue is like procrastination, right? Because we, when we don't yeah. want to do something, we, we procrastinate. Do you have any tips on this? How do we stop procrastinating?
0: I think the usual tips that you hear are can be pretty good. I mean, so psychologists who look at procrastination agree that Like you're, and this is a case where your intuition about what's going on is pretty accurate. It's you're making a decision and the decision, the choice is between something that seems pretty, like it's gonna be pretty unpleasant to do versus something that is more pleasant. Uh, There is one twist to this that a lot of people don't appreciate. This is a, a phenomenon called time discounting. And this is the idea that when you're contemplating getting a reward, if you're contemplating getting the reward in the future, it has less rewarding oomph to it than it does if you're going to get it immediately. So the example I like to use is suppose your doctor has told you you really need to be cut that back on your sugar, like your blood sugar is not great. So you're like, okay, I'm really gonna try and do that. And you're in the grocery store and you've got your buggy and you go by the ice cream aisle and you see your favorite type of ice cream. And you think, man, that would be really nice after supper tonight to have that ice cream. Okay, so now you've got a choice. Listen to my doctor and don't buy the ice cream or buy the ice cream and have it after supper. Now compare that choice to this one. You're at home, you've just finished supper, Your significant other says, oh, this is so thoughtless of me. I got myself a bowl of ice cream. I didn't even ask you if you wanted one. Here, do you want this one? Now you've got the same choice in front of you, ice cream versus listen to my doctor. But our intuition is pretty obvious. It's a whole lot harder to turn down the ice cream when you're contemplating getting it seconds from now compared to resisting the ice cream that you're thinking about getting eight hours from now. So that's time discounting. And so when we think about procrastination, when my choice is, I've got this thing I'm supposed to do for work, I really don't feel like doing it, but the new Ted Lasso season just started. Should I watch Ted Lasso or not? Now you see that, like, delaying Ted Lasso, now I'm contemplating, like, the thing you would say, which is true enough, it's like, Dan, do your work. You can watch Ted Lasso when you're done, like an hour and a half from now. Uh, But Ted Lasso an hour and a half from now is not the same as Ted Lasso immediately, has less rewarding oomph to it. So a lot of the strategies in dealing with procrastination are supposed to make the negative thing seem less negative. So one way it seems negative is that it can seem overwhelming. This is a common reason people procrastinate. I won't make any headway anyway, right? Uh, And so the common advice is break it down into more digestible chunks. I uh, I think that's very good advice. Another thing you can do that you hear less often is to try and reframe your choice. So instead of thinking do I want to do this work now or do I want to watch Ted Lasso? You could think, well, do I want to watch Ted Lasso now and probably not enjoy it as much because I know I've got this thing hanging over my head? Or do I want to knock this thing off so that I can forget about it and then I'm free and I can do whatever I want? So that doesn't work for everybody in every situation, but you can try it sometimes and see if that reframing Uh, you know, sort of emphasizing that now you're choosing not to have the task be done. You're denying yourself the pleasurable feeling of having finished that task. See if that, that makes a difference for you.
1: I like that. I mean, the reframing is a good one. Tell me another.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, for all of these things, and throughout the book, I do this, like for every Problem that you face. I think it's good to have like four or five different strategies. You're not going to use all of them, but the obviously. But the idea is like some of them work for you for some tasks and not other tasks. Or like there's one that really speaks you or whatever it is, right? So it's good to have a lot. Another very common one, and you you hear this a lot in fitness. Actually, it's been studied in fitness. Is just start and it won't be as bad as you think it's going to be. So the original the original. Uh, studies on this were, were actually in fitness when they talked with people about why they didn't exercise. People were like, oh, God, you're sweaty and you're sore and you're out of breath and it feels terrible. And so what they had them do, uh, researchers uh, had people do is rate one to 10, like how pleasant or unpleasant do you anticipate? Here, you're gonna do this. You're gonna be on the treadmill for 10 minutes at this speed. Like, how do you think you'll feel at the end of the 10 minutes? And people made a prediction and then they had them do it And they actually rated and, you know, very consistently people were like, I don't feel great, but you know, I don't feel as bad as I thought I was going to feel. So that's common advice for procrastination. Also, it's like, I really don't want to do it. Then once you start, you're like, this really wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. One other thing I'll invite your listeners to think about that, again, this is not true for everybody, but if it's true of you, it's probably true of you in a lot of circumstances. Sometimes people procrastinate as a way of self-handicapping. So, you know, imagine one of my students, for example, you know, they'll do laundry. There's, you know, the phenomenon of productive procrastination is very familiar to all of us, right? It's like, well, I don't have to do the terrible work I don't want to do, but I can still feel good about myself because I'm making cookies and I'm doing laundry, right? (laughs) Suddenly my bathroom is like, it's intolerable how dirty my bathroom is. Let's clean that. So one of the, and one of the added features of this is that you're doing productive procrastination as a way of self-handicapping so that you're worried um you know what i think even if i work really really hard and try and you know uh, study for this test i'm not going to do very well anyway and that's kind of threatening to me i would feel stupid if i studied really hard and still got a bad grade so instead what I'll, all of this is sort of unconscious right or or barely conscious so instead what i'm going to do is i'm going to make it so i really can't study and you know i'm really rushed at the end and then like if I get a bad grade, well, then it's quite understandable because I was just so busy, I didn't really have time to study. So, if that rings true to you, I mean, then that's a that's sort of another conversation if you're doing that sort of self-handicapping. How do you know how do you stop doing it if you're someone who does that? I think you need to, you know, it depends on what the task is, but I think a lot of it is sort of sitting with the fact that sometimes we work really hard on things and and they don't work out and, you know, and that's okay. Like, you know, and, and especially if it's, you know, you're nervous about it because like, you know, you're nervous about doing your taxes and you're procrastinating like crazy and you look back and it's because, well, my taxes are always a nightmare and I've made mistakes and the IRS has like correcting me and come after me, then I would say, yeah, of course you're nervous about it. Like this is consistently a horrible experience for you. But like, don't discount the possibility that especially with like taking it a little more seriously, maybe getting some help with it. Like it probably won't be really easy the first time you do it, but like you're going to improve if you stick with it and, and, you know, get some resources to help you through it. Uh, you are going to improve and so there's you know but like the path you're on now is not a path of improvement yeah right? it's a path of despair so, yeah. like, let's, let's, let's hop off.
1: that's true that's true what about you know because like you were saying like sometimes when we don't think we're going to do well anyway we tend to like subconsciously self-sabotage that possibility of like that so we end up like not doing it because we don't think we're going to do well anyway how do we build more self-confidence with learning, right? Because some of us just think we're stupid, and therefore we just are like, oh, I'm stupid in school, I can't do it, or I'm stupid as a learner, I'm not going to do it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's important to recognize that, I mean, there, there are few pieces that go into your self-image as a learner, and people tend to focus on just one of those, which is the feedback that they've gotten in the past. Mm-hmm in the form of grades, maybe in the form of something a teacher has said to you. You know, I've, I've made a habit of asking people about like, did you have a favorite teacher when you were growing up? And I've heard a lot of stories that people have told about teachers. And I think it's surprising, but in a way maybe not surprising, how, how many people have a story about one offhand remark that they heard from a teacher that really stuck with them. And sometimes more than one, and you know, sometimes it's positive, Sometimes it's really negative, and you know you can just tell like they know the exact phrasing, right? It's like a flashbulb memory that has stuck with them, and it's so unfortunate because it was almost a from the phrasing you can tell like this was not intended to be like let me tell you what I think of you. It was just something that offhanded. Know, it was offhanded, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: and it's true. That, by the way, that's so true because I. I have one comment that a teacher said to me that stuck with me forever and I write about that also. I tell people about that one stupid comment, like what, 35 years, 30 years later, you know what I mean? It's yeah. crazy.
0: Yeah. Do you want to tell us now?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say that she said to me as my resource teacher, she's like, you know, Jennifer is just not a good student. Don't expect much from her. She's not going to go to college. She's not that type of student. She said it to my mom. And I remember like, wow. I think that like, I don't remember if I overheard her say that or my mom told me I, that part, I, I, I think I like kind of don't remember, but I kind of feel like it propelled me, right? Because it kind of like, I'll show her type of attitude where I like sur- surpassed everything yeah. that she could have imagined, right? But sometimes you need, I use that fuel as as fire, I suppose, but, or I use that as, as a fuel to to, yeah. to go through, but which is funny, I didn't realize that that happens to a lot of other kids, that it happens a lot of times.
0: It happens uh, like, uh, well, you know, if you think about it, start asking people about, like, you know, comments that they remember that uh, a teacher made. Because when I've done that, I almost always find something. And I'll also mention, like, I think it's a amazing and, and so great that you, that, you, that was your response was like, okay, yeah, yeah. let us see about that right Because I think most people you know they're, they're not able to sort of find that inner strength and, and do that. Most people say like, oh gosh, like maybe maybe that is really who I am. Well, but I th- we started off, sorry, sorry go ahead.
1: No, I don't know. No, I was just I gonna finish to. by saying at the beginning, I was like, well, that's because of what she said. it made me think I was really bad in school, so therefore I had very much a lot of insecurity around learning in school. Not and so, but I was fortunate enough that I had I built out other strengths outside of school, like my other, other type of you know, brain uh, smarts. So it was okay. And that's how, how I got the confidence. But yes, to your point, I can that's thank you. Thank
2: you.
0: Yeah. So, but I wanted to add like that, this is just one source of our self image as a learner, it's the one that we're by far the most aware of is the feedback we've gotten, but other things really contribute to your self-image as a learner. And it's worth sort of becoming more aware of that and, and considering it, it's like th- seeing how you feel about it and whether you want to sort of reconsider some of it. So one other source of our self as a learner is family values, What your, how your family thought about learning new things, how your family thought about schooling this is a you know we to to an extent we don't appreciate we absorb these sort of attitudes from mostly from our parents i mean you 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 certainly become aware of the fact that different families have different values usually around 5 or 6 when you start visiting friends' homes, and you realize, like, oh, the rules are different. Like, they really care about being polite at that house. That's weird, right? But it's like those kids, right? I mean, everyone's had had that experience where, like, why, why, why is Robert's mother such a freak about finishing your plate? Like, that's not important at my house at all. And she acts like that's in the Bible or something, right? So this is how parents communicate to their kids things that are important to them. And we get, we absorb messages about learning and about, you know, whether learning and school and grades are all the same thing, or whether there's different types of learning. There's learning that happens outside of school that's that that's important too, and that some people are not, don't succeed very much in school, but they're really good at other types of learning outside of school, right? These are all beliefs that you absorb early on from your family. Another thing that contributes to Sense of self as a learner is who you compare yourself to. Mm. So I tell the story about one of our graduate students who was legitimately worried he was going to fail out of the program because he was uh, because of statistics. And he thought, I'm just not hacking statistics at all. It turned out he was one of the best in the class, but his husband was in the data science program. So his husband was like, you know, in the 99th percentile or something. And he was in like, you know, the 75th, you know, he was very good, uh, but he was comparing himself to, to the wrong person. So that's something you want to, you also want to think about. And then the last thing that contributes to your, your sense of self as a learner is who you're hanging out with. And that, that may be different than who you compare yourself to. So, if you are around people who make it easy to be a learner and make it easy to be self-confident as a learner, that's very different than if you're not. Like, if you're around people who are uh, take learning seriously, then when you want to do something that where you're taking learning seriously, they make that easy to do. They they understand it, they get it, and it doesn't mean like if you've got friends who are not interested in learning don't see themselves it doesn't mean they're bad friends it's just and they may they may be supportive but as we all know it's like it's a little different when you know they get it like you know you're feeling unconfident about something and your friends are encouraging you but if they don't know anything about it at all it's like they're being sweet but like you know i can't help but discount it a little bit right because they don't really know what i'm going through and so who your peer group is who you surround yourself with that can also have a real impact on your sense of self as a learner.
1: That's great. I mean, that's a, that's true. Actually, I agree. But how do we overcome then the anxiety that we have when we when we think we're not good at it, when we don't feel good at it for all the things we've talked about? How could we overcome taking like having that anxiety when we have to take a test or we have to learn something? You have like all these like self calming techniques that you mentioned. Could we talk about some of them?
0: Sure. Yeah. And I mean, this is I think. Uh, again, there are sort of uh, two parts to what you said. One is sort of the anxiety of starting. Like you just feel like I've never been good at this. Like, am I really going to be able to tackle this new skill or whatever it is? And there, I think a big part of it is, you know, getting, getting outside of that comparison and, you know, getting outside of that Feeling you had in school when the comparisons were so explicit and so obvious, and you knew you were not very good at this, right? And I mean, mm-hmm. people who are not good at reading, it's like, yes, I know this is the bluebird group, not the slow kids group, <laughs> yeah. but who's kidding who? <laughs> like, we're all <laughs> reading a different book than the redbirds, right? <laughs> you know, so, exactly, exactly. So, you know, kids know at a very early age, but. You know, you're you're not in school anymore, and you just need to sit with and be okay with. Maybe I'm not very good at this, but that's all right. I don't need to be amazing at it. Like that's not my goal. My goal is to be okay at it. But how about for kids? Is- let's
1: let's talk about kids because we all okay. a lot of people who who are listening, I, I imagine, will have kids
0: and we'll have, who have yeah, kids we'll
1: who have who, yeah who who are parents. And yeah. um, may have kids who have anxiety around this stuff, and therefore perpetuates all of it. They get worse marks, worse grades, and yeah. it becomes like a you know a vicious cycle. What would you tell parents to help them with their help them with their kids?
0: I would try and think first about where this anxiety is coming from. If it's coming from the school and attitudes that are coming from teachers. Then you need to have a conversation with the teachers. If you know this is sort of essentially a value that you don't really share, right. that is, you know, your child's being exposed to, then yeah, you need to have a conversation with them. I would also wonder whether it's coming from you, and I would, you know, sort of interrogate yourself a little bit: Is this really what I want? Like, if your if your attitude is like, well, that's just what school is. And, you know, yeah, you're stressed or whatever. A lot of times parents will feel that way because that that was their experience. Uh, and I would think carefully about whether your child is experiencing it the same way you did. Hmm. Kids, you know, kids do respond to, they're more reactive or less reactive to anxiety. And so it could be that what was just fine for you, legitimately just fine for you, if if unpleasant, uh, is more than unpleasant for your child. And they're they're really struggling for that reason. So that's the first thing I would think about. If they're if they're having clinical levels of anxiety, then, you know, you need to see a professional if, uh, clinical defined as interfering, you know, like yeah. your anxiety is bad enough that it interferes with things that you want to do in your life and you just can't get them done. Now, for everyday test anxiety, yeah, there are lots of things that, that kids can do. And this is the kind of thing that usually doesn't come online until like, middle school at the earliest i mean if kids are getting anxious about tests in elementary school that's really i almost said a bad word messed up uh you know <laughs> kids in kids in elementary school should not be feeling test anxiety and again i would i would want to talk with what's happening in the school if if that's the way they're feeling
1: that's interesting that's interesting my kid gets a hundred on every test and like i i, I mean it doesn't even I can't even understand how. I never got a hundred on any test. So when he gets like ninety-seven, he freak. I'm like, and he's in grade four. I'm like, can you calm down? I'm like, it's yeah. self-induced because I'm not giving. I'm like, I'm like, I'm talking about the effort, not the other stuff. But, you know, like, I think that sometimes it can just be the pressure. Like you said, or maybe around the school. That's actually a good point for parents.
0: Yeah, I would definitely have a conversation if my fourth grader were. Feeling that kind of pressure, I would say. Like, I don't know. Self-induced, though, I
1: think. I think he's very competitive. Maybe that's why. But anyway. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I'd
0: be thinking about channeling that. Elsewhere
1: uh, 100% like what he's he's this is not a podcast about my kid either but I was just saying like he's very competitive like in everything sports whatever but like I I wasn't even bringing this up because of him but I think that when I speak to a lot of different parents and given my audience I would think that this would be something that people would be dealing with so like for their kids or for themselves if there's any type of tips about self like self calming techniques would be great sure.
0: Self, yeah, so self calming, the kinds of things you've heard for self calming are can be really effective. So before or even during a test, prayer, meditation, you know, simple breathing exercises, all of those are a good idea. Self talk is a good idea also. So when when you have uh, mm-hmm. if you have spiraling thoughts during an exam, Like, you know, you have a couple of problems in a row that you're not sure about. And then that leads to, oh my God, I'm gonna fail this exam. Oh my God, if I fail the exam, I'll probably fail the course. Oh my God, I'll never get into college. My mother will be so disappointed and angry. So spiraling thoughts like that, that after the fact, you know, don't make any sense. One thing that can help is the sort of self-talk can be really effective. So focusing on, first of all, how likely is this to happen? So, you know, is, if you miss two, are you really likely to fail the exam or do you always think you're going to fail the exam and then actually things turn out fine? And then also sort of thinking through the consequences. OK, the, the worst happens. You're right. You know what? You fail the exam. Now what happens? Like, are, is your, are you really on this life course that can't be changed. There's no bouncing back from this spelling quiz <laughs> on your fourth grade. <laughs> no, 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 but it's so true.
1: That's what I say. I'm like, calm down. Like he's like, Mom, I got I got 14 out of 15. I'm like, amazing. He's like, so proud of you. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, what do you mean? I missed one. I'm like, oh my God. You it's know? Okay. He's like, yeah. I'm not gonna get into a good middle school. That's what he says to me.
0: Oh. Uh, Lord, you know what? That's that. That's going to be fine. Maybe the worst happens, and you don't get into a good middle school. It's, it's going to be fine. <laughs> it's going to be okay. But let me let me let me finish this thought because there there's a little bit more to the self calming. Yes, talk. please. When you're trying to be rational, you're like you can't do this during an exam yeah. because you're too anxious, you're too frazzled, and you're feeling the time pressure. So what you want to do is do it uh, a couple of days before the exam, uh, or whatever it is that's oh. making you anxious, because. Even though you can't think when you're anxious, memory works pretty well when you're anxious. So in the middle of that that anxiety attack, you can say, you know what? I went through all this a couple of days ago, and I remember concluding this this, this line of thinking doesn't make any sense. Uh, and if you really believed it a couple of days ago, then that memory may very well help. And you'll, uh, you'll say like, yeah, this is not a good mental path.
1: I like that one. I never heard that before, how memory can... Can help that yeah so that's great well i really liked your book so um i thank you for being on this podcast it was really really uh what i loved about it actually is that it actually had a lot of very useful practical things people could do and you can you can put it down you can bring you can you can you know stop reading it you can you can start reading it again for another part i love that type of book right so you don't feel this like obligation right that it has to be all read in one time
0: I tried very hard to make it so the chapters are independent and you can just work on whatever it is you think you want most to work on. And
1: yeah. that makes it so much easier so you don't procrastinate or you don't think, oh, I'll read this book some other time. Like if you have, like it's, and I also like books that are actually very helpful, that are actionable, right? So yeah. that's why I really wanted to have you on this podcast and I, and I really appreciate you being on.
0: And where else can people find you, Daniel? Find your book. So there's my book. So I am on my... My website's a disaster. I do have danielwillingham.com. I like, haven't updated it in forever because, like, I suck. Uh, <laughs> I'm on, on social media. Uh, I'm actually on TikTok. I'm on daniel underscore Willingham uh, on TikTok. And on Facebook and Twitter, I'm DT Willingham.
1: Well, and then they can find the book anywhere, right? Like they could buy it on Amazon or wherever. Yeah, yeah. Books the books are book- sold.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wherever fine and other books are sold, you will find my book.
1: Exactly. It's called, okay, the guys, the book is called Outsmart Your Brain. It's a really good read. And I really suggest you guys grabbing a copy. So thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. It was
2: fun. That was great. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Halataha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media